This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio and your source for all mental health-related news. If it's about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, this is the show where you'll hear about it first without the hype and distortion of other media sources. Along the way, trying to make sense of media reports about research into the causes and treatments of mental illness, and also to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. And you get all that with the benefit of more than 20 years in the private practice of psychiatry. And welcome again. This is the Wednesday, April the 30th edition of Psychiatry Today, 2014, humming along. We're almost in May. And again, hope you've been feeling well mentally and emotionally. As usual, a lot to talk about in terms of mental health-related news. And we're going to get started right away by talking about some good news about bullying. That's right. Some actual good news. Now, regular and long-time listeners to the show will know and understand that talking about the negative impact on children and teens of bullying is something I do quite a bit of. And it isn't just because it's the obvious reason I'm a mental health professional. Of course, I don't want people to have mental health problems. But I also... And passionate about the subject because bullying is something that for too long and until quite recently was ignored, tolerated, considered a rite of passage of childhood and even teenagehood. And I have always felt that, that was just flat out wrong. And the very severe negative consequences have been ignored too long. Adults have failed miserably and consistently to address it and do anything about it. And that's why I continue to talk about it and will continue to talk about it. Because the only way it's going to get better and it's going to stop is if we adults keep the issue in mind and we keep talking about it. And those of us who are parents let teachers and school administrators and school boards know that we do not want it tolerated in our kids' schools. And uh, so that's why it's something I've always been talking about. But honestly, I think this is the first time I'm going to be telling you something positive about trends in bullying in the United States. And uh, I can't tell you how good that feels. You know, lots of times when I'm bringing you material related to mental health issues on the show, I, I always feel like I'm a gloomy gust just bringing everyone down because the news, well, unfortunately, is often quite bad. So it is with tremendous pleasure that I bring you some positive news about bullying, and that is the rates of bullying seem to have dropped among American teens who are much less likely to engage in bullying 
compared to a decade ago, according to this new research. They looked at surveys completed by middle school and high school students between 1998 and 2010, and they suggest that instances of both verbal and physical bullying have dropped by roughly half, with much of the decline seen specifically among boys. So these findings are extremely encouraging, and especially if you consider that the data are already four years old. 2010 is the most recent information in the study. Uh, so if those trends are continuing after that period of time they looked at, then it's fair to speculate the rates are even lower. Now, of course, in recent years, there has been more attention to anti-bullying efforts, such as prevention programs, and responses to bullying have been incorporated into school policies. These prevention efforts and the additional attention and awareness of the problem of bullying may be the reason for this decline. And that's why it's so important to keep up the dialogue, keep the pressure on schools to implement and enforce bullying policies. The results are in the April 17 online edition of the American Journal of Public Health. During the study period, four surveys were conducted among a nationally representative sample of students attending grades 6 through 10. Each survey included roughly 9,000 to 16,000 teens. Those polled were asked to indicate how much they had engaged in bullying in school during the prior two months. Bullying was defined as involving two or more people of unequal strength or power and included verbal teasing and insulting, excluding or ignoring peers, physical abuse, the spreading of false and negative rumors, and or making sexual jokes. Off-campus bullying, including cyberbullying, was not covered by the survey. In addition, students were asked to indicate the frequency with which they carried a weapon, such as a gun or knife. The researchers found that weapon carrying did not fall off during the study period. And, whilst, and also, white students were actually slightly more likely to pack a weapon in 2010 than they had been in 1998. However, fewer students said that they had been a victim of bullying in the same time frame, with rates dropping from nearly 14% to just over 10%. That decrease was seen primarily among boys. An even more dramatic drop was seen among those students who said they had instigated an act of bullying. That figure fell from nearly 17% in 1998 to below 8% by 2010. Bullying rates varied, however, when broken down by different groups. For example, while bullying among white students fell by 64% in the study time frame, it dropped only 30% among black students. 
Younger students, those in grades 6 to 8, also saw bigger declines than older students in grades 9 and 10. When looked at by gender, bullying remained more common among boys than girls, with one exception. In the 2010 poll, girls were found to engage in more social ostracizing than boys. Name-calling and social ostracizing were found to be the most common types of bullying in general, and these also saw the sharpest decline over the years. It is encouraging to see that the public education policy attention to bullying may be slowly paying off, but the study didn't touch specifically on instances of bullying that are rooted in discrimination, a tricky aspect of social ostracizing that students are prone to justify as, quote, just normal, unquote. Well, again, uh, regardless of any caveats, this is extremely encouraging news. And again, let's hope that um, since the data only go back as far as 2010 or only as recently as 2010, uh, that this tr these trends have continued and uh, that the rates of bullying are continuing to climb, to decline. Uh, in the meantime, we need to keep up the pressure by continuing to be aware of what's going on in our children's lives and uh, be aware of our school's policies about bullying and make sure that they are implemented and supported. Now, one of the consequences of bullying that happens in childhood that we already are well aware of is that kids who have been subjected to this abuse are more prone to develop psychiatric illnesses later on in childhood or during adolescence and certainly on into adulthood. Uh, so that's why it's crucial to try to prevent this as much as possible. Now, here is another support um, for uh, children, uh, a study rather, uh, looking at school kids taking psychiatric medications. Now, I know that this topic arouses a lot of controversy. Uh, there are those who are in the camp that think we give too many medications to too many kids, uh, and then that conflicts with the reality that there are a lot of kids with mental illness that do not get any treatment whatsoever. So here comes a report that says, one out of 13 United States school kids takes psychiatric medications. And so we can look at this report and uh, examine uh, both sides of the controversy, more than 7% of American school children are taking at least one medication for emotional or behavioral difficulties, according to a new government report. More than 7% of kids. But apparently the medications are working because more than half of the parents said the drugs are helping their children, according to the report. And the parents certainly would not continue to give their kids the medications uh, if they were not helping. 
81% of the children with emotional or behavioral difficulties had been diagnosed with Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD, at some point in their lives. Oppositional Defiant Disorder, Anxiety, and Depression are other likely diagnoses. Overall, researchers found that 7.5% of U.S. children between the ages of 6 and 17 were taking medication for an emotional or behavioral problem. And when we come back from our first commercial break, we'll uh, take a more detailed look at that data and break it down by gender and race and look at some socioeconomic breakdown as well. We'll have that and much more mental health-related news later after this break on Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. This is Dr. Elena George with your health tip of the day. Did you know that snoring can lead to chronic health problems? Snoring can be a sign of sleep apnea. Snoring is simply noisy breathing that can disturb those around you. However, sleep apnea is a serious condition that leads to a decrease in oxygen in the blood. The brain and the heart are two organs that depend on oxygen to function well. Studies have shown that a lack of oxygen at night leads to weight gain, problems with memory and concentration, depression, high blood pressure, obesity, diabetes, and stroke. There are several ways to decrease snoring. For example, lose weight if you are overweight. Avoid alcohol at least three to four hours before bedtime. Stop smoking. Control nasal allergies to things such as dust and mold. And avoid eating dairy products such as milk and cheese. If you think you have sleep apnea, you should see a doctor to be evaluated. Please join me on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. for Medicine on Call. This is Dr. Elena George. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. You're listening to America. WebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio, with all your mental health-related news. We're talking about a study showing that one out of 13 kids in U.S. schools is taking at least one psychiatric medication. <clears throat> now, that breakdown was... Seven and a half percent of U.S. kids between ages six to seventeen, significantly more boys than girls were given medication. Nine point seven percent of boys compared with five point two percent of girls. Older girls were more likely than younger girls to be given medication, but the age difference among males wasn't significant. White children were the most likely to be on psychiatric medications, 9.2%, followed by black children, 7.4%, and Hispanic children at 4.5%. The study found that significantly more children on Medicaid, or the Children's Health Insurance Program, were on medication for emotional and behavioral problems, 9.9%, versus 
6.7% with private health insurance, and just 2.7% of children without any insurance. Also, more families living below 100% of the federal poverty level had children taking medications for emotional and behavioral problems than those above the federal poverty level. 55% of parents reported that these medications helped their children a lot, more than half, while another 26% said they helped some. That's up to three quarters that helped some or a lot. Just under 19% said they didn't help at all or helped just a little. Parents of younger children between ages 6 and 11 were slightly more likely to feel the medications helped a lot compared to parents of older children. Parents of males were also more likely to feel the medications helped a lot. About 58% of parents of boys reported that they helped a lot, compared to about 50% of the parents of females. This is not too difficult to figure out or predict even based on the fact that there are more males than females in the group that are on medication. Now, parents with incomes less than 100% of the federal poverty level were the least likely to feel the medications helped a lot. Just 43% of those parents said the medications helped a lot, while about 31% said they helped some. More than one quarter of these parents said the medications only helped a little or not at all. There are many factors that might contribute to more use of medications in people living under the poverty line and for those on government insurance programs. There may be parenting challenges, such as more single-parent households. Medications may be more available than access to behavioral treatments. And there may be more logistical issues with non-pharmaceutical interventions, like getting time off from work to take children to therapy, for example. Many more families have access to prescription medications, uh, more so than to non-pharmaceutical interventions. There is a lack of mental health treatment parity, despite rules being written and lip service uh, being given to that issue. It seems encouraging that children who are identified as taking prescription medications are mostly benefiting from those medications. However, there are non-pharmaceutical treatments for virtually all psychiatric diagnoses in children. For households, where a child has significant emotional or behavioral difficulties, counseling, behavior management, and some forms of psychotherapy can also be useful. <clears throat> so really, the report uh, certainly would fuel the fire uh, of those who decry the trend toward increased prescribing of medications for children um, in that it's only a little more than half of parents thinks the medicines help the kids altogether, 
uh, and, and yet they're given to a broad population of children. On the other hand, some of the demographic and socioeconomic data makes an argument for the other side uh, of the issue, which is that as many kids as there are who are taking medication and getting treatment, there are many more who need treatment and are not getting it. And, uh, you know, that may be borne out in the data on um, the demographics and socioeconomics where you have, if you have at least Medicaid, if not private health insurance, you're much more likely to get treated than if you're uninsured. I think what's important for parents to keep in mind is um, if it is recommended that your child take medication, then there needs to be a compelling reason, uh, reasons why behavioral treatments for it, non-psychopharmacological treatments for whatever the problem may be, uh, either just are flat out unavailable um, or they've been tried and have not been successful. Um, and even then, it's important to impress upon the treating clinicians that uh, you be provided with any and all alternative options uh, before starting medication and also to be uh, very well informed by the prescribing physician uh, as to what the risks and benefits are uh, as opposed to having to uh, find this out uh, on your own. Now, let's stick with teen mental health related issues for this next topic. Uh, an expert recommends to keep your prescription drugs secure from teens. Yes, because we know that teens are more impulsive and therefore they're going to be more prone to experiment with things. And one of the things they experiment with is using prescription drugs, uh, especially prescription sedatives and painkillers. Teens' addiction to prescription or even over-the-counter medications often begins when they have easy access to medications in their homes. Many parents make a special effort to keep medications away from young children to prevent accidental poisonings, but they don't realize that teens are the group most likely to misuse and abuse medications. As many as 20% of American teens have abused prescription drugs, according to the United States Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here in Atlanta. About 50% of United States high school seniors said that narcotic drugs other than heroin would be fairly or very easy to get. That, according to a 2012 National Institute on Drug Abuse Survey. We're talking about prescription narcotic painkillers uh, that may be lurking in the medicine cabinet where you least expect it. When you had that dental procedure, uh, when you hurt yourself and you know had to go get x-rays, 
you're given a prescription for pain medication, but you might not take any of it, much less all of it, and uh, the remainder stays in the medicine cabinet or somewhere in the house where the wrong person who likes to misuse medications like that may get their hands on it. Adolescents sometimes believe that medications prescribed by a doctor or that are available over the counter are a medically safe high. But this is just one of the tragic myths that prevail. This dangerous misconception, along with the easy availability of these medications, are key contributors to the prescription drug addiction crisis affecting more than 2 million American children. The United States Drug Enforcement Agency's National Prescription Drug Take-Back Day, which uh, took place just this past Saturday on April the 26th, is a nationwide program to encourage people to safely dispose of expired or unwanted prescription medications. The idea is that you can take your old prescription medications, uh, no matter what they are, no questions asked, to these national take-back day sites. Uh, could be a police station, could be a pharmacy. And although if you're listening to this now, you've missed the one for uh, that just took place on Saturday, April 26th, my suggestion would be to keep your eyes peeled for the uh, local events section of the newspaper or the uh, local newspaper that they drop on the driveway once a week. Uh, there are often notices in places like that when these national take-back days for prescription drugs are happening. And there's usually a very enthusiastic, react enthusiastic reaction to this and a lot of people bringing in old medicine. It isn't just pain medicine that you need to keep secure from teens. They'll, they'll likely as not experiment with most anything, and it's really a good idea once nobody in the house is taking that medication anymore to throw away uh, what's left. <clears throat> now, in terms of uh, the study on teens, uh, it's important to keep all prescription and, if possible, over-the-counter medications locked up and make sure that grandparents and other relatives do the same in their houses. Get an updated written inventory of all medications in the home. Be sure to properly dispose of unused and expired medications. Uh, you can take them to the local pharmacy, even if it's not a national take-back day, but don't pour them down the sink or flush them in the toilet because that can contaminate the water supply. And scientists are already finding pharmaceutical residues in the water supply uh, and in streams all over the country, indeed all over the world. Okay, it's time to take another commercial break. We'll have more mental health-related news. When we come back, you're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott right back after this break. 
This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. Spring is in the air, literally. So follow Sniffles to Atlanta Center for Breathing Easy. Weeds, spores, grass, pollen. Airborne allergen levels are through the roof, putting your allergies into overdrive. It's time to followsniffles.com. Follow me and breathe easy. End your annual ritual of taking medication to alleviate facial pressure, facial pain, congestion, and headaches by treating the problem, not the symptom. Balloon sinuplasty just could be the cure you're looking for. This proven in-office procedure can have you breathing easy. Back to work the next day. Followsniffles.com. Follow me and breathe easy. Your severe sinus and nasal symptoms gone once and for all. Get lasting relief, a quick recovery, and start breathing easy again. Call us at 404-591-9100. That's 404-591-9100. Follow me and breathe easy. Followsniffles.com. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Once again, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio, your source for all mental health-related news. Well, we have more on the controversy surrounding antidepressants being linked to suicidal behavior in young people. Now, that sounds very strange to those of you who aren't familiar with this controversy. It's been going on for many years. A report came out in the early 2000s about antidepressant medications. These are medications that are supposed to relieve symptoms of depression, among which is, of course, the most severe symptom, suicidal thinking and behavior. Uh, But among young people, they were thought to uh, have found to increase, not decrease, the incidence of suicidal thinking and behavior. And a lot of uh, controversy ensued from this, of course. The Food and Drug Administration applied a very severe warning uh, to all antidepressant medications. And ironically, hardly any of these medications are approved to be used in children and adolescents in the first place. But in any case, the article that I'm going to talk about now is about very recent new research. And uh, during the course of the article, we'll kind of reiterate the history behind the issue for those of you who are not familiar with it. So stay with me on it. It'll become clear. But apparently this new study shows that higher doses of antidepressants apparently are linked to suicidal behavior in young patients. When prescribing antidepressants for teens and young adults, doctors should not start with high doses of the drugs because it might raise the risk of suicidal behavior, according to new research. My reaction upon first reading that was, why would any doctor start 
with a high dose of an antidepressant for any patient at any age. It's very clear that no matter what the age of the patient, no matter what the antidepressant, you're not supposed to start a patient on a high dose. You're supposed to start on a low dose, and if they don't respond adequately, then you consider raising the dose or not. So the whole notion of anyone starting on a high dose from the beginning seemed very odd and very inappropriate to me. Uh, why would anyone do that? No one ever should do that. And so, therefore, it would come as no surprise that if anyone were careless enough to do that, uh, there would be adverse consequences for the patients. <clears throat> now, the study I'm talking about was published online on uh, <clears throat> April the 28th, on Monday of this week, in the journal uh, JAMA, that stands for Journal of the AMA Internal Medicine, uh, and it was it found that younger patients who began treatment with higher than recommended doses of antidepressants were more than twice as likely to try to harm themselves as those who were initially treated with the same drugs but at lower recommended doses. And this research is likely to inflame an ongoing debate in psychiatry whether or not it's safe to prescribe antidepressants to children and young adults. Now, you know, what I think gets lost in this debate, there are only a very small number of antidepressants that are officially FDA-approved to be given to children and adolescents. It's a very short list. Prozac is approved for depression. Zoloft and Luvox is approved for obsessive-compulsive disorder. And Lexapro is approved for depression. That's it. No other antidepressants are approved for use in kids. In 2004, this is the important historical background information. 2004, the Food and Drug Administration issued a public warning about the risk of suicide in children and teens treated with antidepressants. The warning followed a government review that found youngsters who took the drugs were twice as likely to try to harm themselves as those who took placebo pills. And the F Food and Drug Administration expanded its black box warning about suicidal thinking and behavior on these drugs uh, in 2007 to include not only children and adolescents, but anyone younger than age 25. And what the article doesn't say, but that I will tell you, and forgive me if this is repetitive for regular and long-time listeners, you've heard me say this over and over again, but for those of you not familiar with this controversy, once this warning about suicidal thinking and behavior in children and adolescents went on, the drugs in 2004, the actual rates of suicides in children and adolescents, which had been decreasing in the 10 years or so prior to that warning being placed on the drugs, started to increase. So instead of the Food and Drug Administration's dire warnings making more people safe, the effect was far less antidepressants were prescribed to children and adolescents. 
non-psychiatric physicians in particular stayed away from treating, stayed away from diagnosing depression in children and adolescents because if they did diagnose it, then they would have to treat it. And if they would have to treat it, they would have to give these young people these medications with these dire warnings, something they wanted no part of. They stayed away from it in droves. The rate of prescribing of these medications dropped drastically, and therefore the rates of depression and actual suicides increased. It should be noted that all the research that generated this dire warning in the first place, not a single child or adolescent actually committed suicide. But the effect of the warning was that there was less diagnosis of depression, less prescribing of medications, increased rates of depression, increased rates of actual suicide. Now, the article does note that more recent research has challenged the idea that antidepressants are dangerous for kids and young adults. There was a review published also in 2007 in the Journal of the American Medical Association. It concluded that the benefits of taking antidepressants outweighed the potential harms when it came to teens and young adults. Another study published in 2007, this one in the American Journal of Psychiatry, showed exactly what I was just talking about, that while youth prescriptions for antidepressants, especially the serotonin reuptake inhibitors, that's Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft, Luvox, Alexa, and Lexapro, had dropped by 22% since the black box warning came out, suicides in children and teens increased. And the article mentions that certain experts cite this finding as proof that the FDA's warning was short-sighted and that the drugs actually prevent youth suicides. I could not possibly agree more. But there are no studies that have looked at suicide risk by drug dosage, as this latest study did. Now, before we go into the details of the study, I want to point out that what we just talked about shows that if there is an initial finding, subsequent research may not bear it out. And so while this finding of higher doses being linked with suicidal behavior uh, certainly is cause for concern, uh, we know from past history it is wrong to draw firm conclusions based on one study. Right. So with that caveat, let's look at the details of how this study was done and what they found. <clears throat> the uh, researchers pulled information from a large prescription claims database. They can, you can get this information from insurance companies and specifically the companies who manage pharmacy benefits. The study included more than 162,000 patients between the ages of 10 to 64 with a diagnosis of depression who started taking the antidepressants somewhere between the years 1998 and 2010. And the researchers restricted their analysis to three of the most commonly prescribed antidepressants 
All three happen to be SSRI, or Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor Antidepressants, Celexa, Zoloft, and Prozac. And then they separated the users of the medications into those who started at the recommended dosages of those medications or those who were prescribed higher than recommended doses of the drugs. The normal doses to start a patient on were 20 a day, 20 milligrams a day for Celexa, 50 milligrams a day for Zoloft, and 20 milligrams a day for Prozac. Nearly 18% of the patients in the study were started on doses that were higher than those in conflict with current medical guidelines. Now again, I have to say I do not understand why the focus of the study is on the effects of high doses of the drugs when it should be on inappropriate prescribing. I mean, it's probably to to start someone on any of these medications at a dose higher than those probably doesn't reach the threshold of being able to call it malpractice per se, medical malpractice, but at the very bare minimum, it's very inappropriate prescribing and it, you know, since it goes against the prescribing guidelines for all three of these medications, if there should be a negative outcome, it would be a slam dunk for a medical malpractice lawsuit. Uh, A medical malpractice lawyer would have a field day if the medical record showed that a doctor started a patient on an abnormally high dose instead of starting on the lower recommended doses, like I just told you, uh, that's a slam dunk case. Uh, It's like the doctor's malpractice insurance company might as well just write the check. Uh, But again, instead of the focus on the physicians not prescribing the drugs correctly, the focus of the study is these drugs are bad, they do harm, they increase suicidal thinking and behavior. This does more to stigmatize medication, and this does more to scare people away from needed treatment. All right, got to take a commercial break. We'll be right back with more on this subject. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. When gardening is part of your life, it brings so much. Healthy eating, the freshest, most local produce, and playing in the dirt. At BonniePlants.com, you'll find all you need to succeed. When you grow Bonnie veggie and herb plants in beds or containers, you'll know where your food comes from. Homegrown veggies and herbs ready for cooking, eating, and enjoying. And you did it. So get growing with Bonnie Plants. Membership. Are you an IHC member? Access to the Institute for Healthcare Consumerism's Breaking News industry trends, expert blogs, and networking with IHC's industry-wide member community. IHC membership puts you at the focal point of the dynamic health and benefit industry, allowing you to join the conversation and collaborate with industry stakeholders and your peers. Your IHC membership includes a subscription to Healthcare Consumerism Solutions Magazine, Healthcare Exchange Solutions Magazine, annual publications Healthcare Solutions Superstars, and Healthcare Solutions Outlook. 
a free white paper, and much more. Sign up as a free IHC member or $99 premium IHC member today at www.theihcc.com. That's www.theihcc.com. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay with you. We're talking about new research looking again to make the claim that antidepressants do harm to young people. When, in fact, the study is talking about higher than normal doses being prescribed to young people and documenting that this increases the risk of suicidal thinking and behavior, uh, the point I was making right before the break is that this is going to increase the stigma associated with taking these medications. It is going to scare doctors away from prescribing them, and it is going to scare patients and parents away from having young people take them. The focus instead should be on what I feel is gross incompetence and negligence on the part of any physician who would start a patient on a higher than recommended dose. Now, researchers looked at the patient's medical records to see how many of them who had taken these medications had committed acts of deliberate self-harm within one year of starting them. Again, they only looked at Celexa, Zoloft, and Prozac and only those patients who had been started on a dose higher than the recommended starting dose. For Celexa, that's 20 milligrams. For Zoloft, it's 50. For Prozac, it's 20. Now, among the patients who were younger than age 24, the patients who were started originally on the higher doses harmed themselves at roughly twice the rate of those on the lower doses. During the study period, which again, that was from 1998 to 2010, there were 32 incidents of self-harm for every 1,000 young patients who were started on a high dose, only 15 such incidents per 1,000 patients who had been started on the recommended doses. The researchers further estimated that doctors would see one additional case of self-injury for every 136 younger patients treated with higher than recommended doses of antidepressants. This is a statistical method. It's called effect size. The risk of suicide attempts seem to be highest in the first 90 days on the medications. The investigators found no significant increase in the risk of self-harm by drug dosage for people over the age of 25, however, suggesting that this effect was age-dependent. But this is very important, and I'm glad the article mentions it, there was no increase in suicide risk 
in kids and teens treated with recommended drug dosages. Say that again. The kids and teens were treated with recommended dosages, no increased risk in suicide. Now, the study was observational, meaning the researchers can't say for sure that the drug dosage was the only thing that made young patients more likely to hurt themselves. Uh, by characterizing the study as observational, which it is, they're saying, look, you're, you're making an observation of certain facts and you're deciding whether or not it's appropriate to draw certain conclusions. Obviously, it would be unethical to uh, design a study differently where you would purposely take a bunch of depressed young people and uh, give some of them the medications at the usual starting dose and the rest of them these medications at a higher than normal starting dose and see if any of them became suicidal. You know, obviously you couldn't do that. So the most you can do is make these observations of these situations and compare them to kids who had been given the usual dosages. Now, one of the study authors said they think, or, or actually might have just been an expert um, quoted for the article, right, it wasn't one of the authors who was an expert quoted for the article, said there might be something about the patients themselves that prompted doctors to start them on a higher dose in the first place. And he's quoted as saying, assuming it was not just medical error, that there was something that the physicians were responding to, either greater severity or that the patient had had a history of needing higher doses to respond in the past. Why is this expert acting as an apologist for these doctors who were prescribing too high a dose? Of course it was medical error. There is no possible excuse to explain or, or uh, forgive or justify prescribing practices like this. It doesn't matter if the patient had a known history of requiring higher doses of medications to get a certain response. You don't start them out at the high dose. At most, you don't wait as long uh, after the patient's on the normal starting dose before considering increasing it. But regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the severity of the patient's symptoms, regardless of the past history of needing higher doses than normal to respond to medications, you start at the recommended starting dose no higher. No ifs, ands, or buts. It is not appropriate medical care to do otherwise. <clears throat> now, besides which, the researchers, uh, and this was done at Harvard, they didn't think that was the case at all. They looked closely at their data to see if there were differences that might explain why some patients were prescribed higher doses of the drugs. Among the factors they considered were how recently the patients had been diagnosed with depression. Where were they diagnosed? Was that in the hospital? Which, of course, that's a more severe case. Or people who were just being treated as outpatients. And also, whether they, in addition to depression, also had anxiety. 
which when you have depression complicated by anxiety, there is a higher risk for suicidal thinking and behavior. They also looked at whether there was a past history of suicide attempts, and they found no differences among all these different parameters between the groups who were started on the proper normal dose or versus the group who were prescribed too high a dose initially. And in fact, the only difference at all was the dose. Now, the researchers even performed a statistical test to calculate the likelihood that there was some ghost factor or some unknown parameter that they missed, that they didn't think of, that might account for the differences. You know, statisticians have unbelievable tools that we can't fathom. So they ran this test, and they found that that was unlikely. So again, uh, you cannot make excuses or fathom any reasons or come up with any justification for why doctors would prescribe initially a dose that's higher than what's recommended. At the very least, the research should encourage doctors to, as the old saying goes, start low and go slow with antidepressants, especially in young patients, stick to the prescribing guidelines and increase the dose only if it's absolutely necessary. Now, <clears throat> again, to me, it's really sad that we have to come to this type of uh, research to remind doctors of how to prescribe medications. Doctors should already know how to prescribe medications, how to follow published prescribing guidelines as outlined by the Food and Drug Administration for literally any and every medication in existence, including antidepressants. Um, but again, you know, I think the uh, unfortunate part of this research is that um, <clears throat> it will again further stigmatize antidepressants, which far, by far uh, decrease uh, the risk of suicidal thinking and behavior um, and it will stir up more controversy, and uh, I, I fear <clears throat> that it will discourage doctors from prescribing them and patients from taking them, uh, when all that needs to happen is for doctors to do their job the right way. Start with the initial recommended dose and no more. Now, <clears throat> let me... Uh, for those of you who are concerned about dosages and medications, I do want to say that you don't have to keep a patient on the low starting dose indefinitely. In fact, while a lot of academicians argue that raising the dose doesn't usually help, I don't think that's true. So whereas someone who starts on 20 of Celexa or 50 of Zoloft or 20 of Prozac might feel only slightly better after they've been on it a long enough period of time, at least a month, maybe six or eight weeks. If they're feeling somewhat better but still not back to normal, the goal in treatment of depression is to knock the depression back as much as you can, as quickly as you can. So after about six weeks, you pretty much know what results you're getting. And at that point, it's perfectly appropriate to raise the dose, the next levels on those drugs would be 40 of Celexa 
or 100 of Zoloft or 40 of Prozac, for example. And there are similar parameters for all other antidepressants. Uh, unfortunately, a big mistake that primary care physicians make is that they will start someone on a very, very low dose and leave them there. And then someone may not get better or they might get slightly better, but they're not going to be treated aggressively enough to restore them to complete normal functioning mentally, emotionally, socially, occupationally, academically. So it is important to raise the dose after someone's been on the initial starting dose long enough, but they haven't achieved a full response. Uh, it's also important to screen for side effects. If someone's having very severe negative side effects, then of course you wouldn't necessarily want to raise the dose. That's just going to make things worse. You know, in a case like that, if someone's either not feeling much better or they're feeling better, but the side effects are really bad, then it's probably good to give some consideration to trying a different medication altogether. Well, in any case, uh, I'm sure you can tell I feel passionately about this issue. But again, that's the core mission of the show, to decrease the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment. Unfortunately, research like this only serves to exacerbate that stigma. Well, that's going to have to wrap it up for tonight's show, folks. Uh, I hope that you found the information I brought to you interesting and informative. I certainly enjoyed bringing it to you. And I hope that until we get together again next week, you have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.